0: Frank Ling
1: and I'm Charles Lee,
0: and you're listening to the Grok Science Show.
1: That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's program, Dr. Brett Stedcup will join us to discuss a history of the human brain.
0: So stay tuned for all of this,
1: plus the Grokatron 5000,
0: and our world famous question of the week.
1: Coming right up here on the Grok's Science Show. Science show. Well, the human brain is perhaps one of the most intriguing, yet still mysterious, parts of nature. What is it about the history of the human brain that makes it so unique? Well, joining us today to discuss this issue is Dr. Brett Stetka. Dr. Stetka is an editorial director at Medscape.com, the professional division of WebMD. He's a non-practicing physician and a freelance health and science journalist for a variety of print and online publications. He's a graduate of the University of Virginia School of Medicine and completed a research and science writing postdoctoral year at the Mount Sinai School of Medicine. He's a regular contributor to NPR, as well as Scientific American Magazine, where he writes about neuroscience, psychiatry, and evolution. He has penned the new book, a history of the human brain from the sea sponge to CRISPR: How our brains evolved. Dr. Stedka, thank you so much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show.
0: Thanks so much for having me, Charles. I appreciate it.
1: Great book you've written here, A History of the Human Brain, where you really take a long view of how we got to where we are with the human brain.
0: Sure, yeah, I did take quite a long view. Uh, Maybe that could have been a mistake in hindsight. It was a lot to squeeze into 250 pages. But I've been interested in the brain and neuroscience my whole life. Kind of inspired by my father, who was a geneticist. I always knew I would probably go into science. I ended up in medical school studying the brain. Had planned on being a neurologist, but fell into research. Loved that. Then somehow published a bunch of papers, fell into medical journalism. So... All of a sudden, my career pivoted, as they say, to being a health and science journalist, and I've covered neuroscience for probably 15 years. And when I was approached to write a book by an agent, he asked if I had any ideas, and I said, absolutely not, no no ideas whatsoever. But it occurred to me that no one had really written a uh, Pan history of the evolution of the brain. There had been some really great books about the heart and how we came to understand that. And so I said, well, what if we just you know did a, a sort of a tale of the human saga? How did this amazing cognitive brain come to be through you know billions of years of, of animal evolution?
1: It is really remarkable. From that viewpoint, you trace it all the way back to the very first proto nervous system, sea sponges. Even remarkable that something like the nervous system evolved.
0: It is and that's, that's sort of why that's in the subtitle because I didn't know this till I was researching but the sea sponge is considered the first animal or among the first animals to evolve on earth probably about 700 million years ago on the ocean floor and it has cellular communication very similar to how our neurons in, you know, in our brains today communicate. So you know, we were set up you know, hundreds of millions of years ago to have these complex cellular interactions that can that now lead to the beauty of our conscious experience. It, they don't have any sort of neural network. It's just they have a, they just have cells that became specialized. That was a key, you know, part of animal evolution is that single cells, previously bacteria and archaea, all of a sudden single cells would come together to form a group of cells and they would take on specialized functions. And so those cells just communicated through some of the same neurotransmitters and ion channels just by being neighbors, you know, just by electric current would travel from one to another, which is, is how a neuron works. It just does it in a much more efficient fashion. So it was a long, slow process, but by the time, 100 million years after that, you, you have little sea worms that were our ancestors that do have neurons and nerve nets you see in early jellyfish. So it's, it's a long process, but it really just started with cells talking to each other through chemical and electricity, basically.
1: So specialized cells eventually became something like neurons we think of of the brain?
0: So, if the estimate for the sea sponge is 700 million years ago, probably by 600 million years ago, you you do have pulsing jellyfish-like creatures, probably a proto-jellyfish, a comb jelly, and at that point you have what's called a nerve net. So, if, you know, a few of these cells have evolved to take on slightly more you know complex communication, and so basically, and jellyfish still have that. They have a it's a loose web of neurons that communicate. It's very crude, but it allows them to you know control their movement and pulse through the water and that, and our ancestors were are called bilateria which just means bilateral it was sort of a, a worm a worm-like marine thing that is not very romantic it's not a very romantic piece of our history but that uh, that's where we stem and they had a bilateral setup with a, with a very rudimentary nervous system that would allow it to scuttle along the sea floor. They eventually developed a f- photoreceptor cells toward one end. So you, the idea of cephalization is where you you evolve all your sensory organs at one end to develop, you know, later would form a head and then eventually a brain. So these are proto eyes and proto chemoreceptors or your sense of, you know, or your mouth or, or nose basically. And um, so yeah, it was, it, it was a slow process. Eventually when you get to fish Having a head was incredibly beneficial in a proto-brain, so you see the evolution of a skull and a skeleton to protect it. And at that point, you're starting to get into animals that are much more familiar to us today, like your cartilaginous fish, like rays and sharks, and your bony fish, like the, all of the ones we, we tend to eat, salmon, mackerel, and the like.
1: And then it sort of just takes off from there, brain specialization, then it's process of refining and, and fine-tuning it in a way.
0: For sure, once you get fish, the whole uh, evolutionary um, trajectory just... It blows up because all of a sudden you have these hunters you know previously you know you don't see a jellyfish going after another jellyfish but once you have a jawed fish with a, a firm skeleton and teeth you know it, it's it was warfare at sea and so all of a sudden there was incredible selection pressure to be faster and more intelligent and um, so yes yeah, so you, you, you the kind of the general march is you get fish and then a few of them can crawl to land so there you get you, there you have amphibians and they, they then evolve into reptiles. About 250 million years ago, a reptile lineage evolves into mammals. And then during this period, the dinosaurs were still in charge. So us mammals were just tiny little, little nervous sort of shrew and chipmunk-looking creatures. But once the dinosaurs went extinct around 66 million years ago, mammals could really thrive. And that's when primates evolved and branched off from the mammalian tree. So you get monkeys up in the trees, and then there's a whole host of selection pressure when you're living in the trees that have changed our vision and led to our big social brains, the big primate social brain.
1: When we eventually get to the primate, what are the hallmark specializations that we begin to see with the brain and for our survival?
0: I kind of pinpoint... I think five or six pillars of our evolution uh, influences that were incredibly important and one is being social. Primates are all incredibly social uh, at least from monkeys on, you know, chimps and bonobos groom each other all day long to maintain social relationships and and they can maintain about 50 friends and once we see symbolic language arise in humans all of a sudden you can, you don't have to groom your friend all day long. You can just say, oh, you know, I like you, we're friends and, and maintain a much larger social group so we can maintain Still to this day, about 150 meaningful relationships. Uh, So that was crucial. There's many pillars. Our omnivorous diet and our adaptability was huge, which has a social element to it. You know, once we started eating meat, we had a very reliable calorie source. Yet, we could also eat fruit. We could eat, uh, you know, tubers from the African savanna. So if the fruit of the forest dried up. We can go out to the savannah and dig up a tuber. If the tubers dry up, we go back to the forest. We can go to the shore and eat fish. So our diet uh, let us endure many, many population bottlenecks, they call them, where we nearly could have gone extinct and helped us endure climate change, really. Uh, There were many different eras in the last two to four million years where the climate drastically changed in Africa, and we were able to endure it in part due to our diet and our social skills where a lot of other of the... Other human species and early human species uh, did not.
1: Brain really requires a lot of energy to keep it going and to maintain a, a very complex brain. You probably need, need a lot of food.
0: And the, well, then the moment that you have a reliable food source, uh, and and honestly, meat is a big one that most anthropologists anthropologists agree on. About two million years ago, when Homo erectus started, uh, our ancestors started reliably hunting. Even even vegetarians admit that today, all of a sudden, our brains balloon and almost double in size. And the thought is that it. It wasn't necessarily the nutrients in meat because we had plenty of good nutrients from other from plant source foods. It was mainly that if you hunt a 150 pound antelope, all of a sudden you have reliable food for days or, or weeks if you if you have fire, which we eventually did, and that frees up your day and your and your hands for other pursuits. So you can you go out and work on crafting a spear or, or making art, making weapons, and then selection can then act on those other traits rather than you know having to worry about us foraging for 12 hours a day
1: fire was a very crucial. I mean, it unlocks a lot of the calories in food and meat, and we don't have to spend as much time.
0: Exactly, and once we had fire, our guts started shrinking, because it was easier to digest, and, you know, we needed to, uh, we needed those calories for our, our big growing brains. that's called the expensive brain hypothesis. So, yeah, once you get fire, we can preserve food, you know, we can sterilize food, um, which is which is the reason why today our guts are kind of wimpier, I'll put it, compared to, say, a dog, because we, you know, we're not used to eating as many microbes as, as we used to to be. But yeah, you preserve food, you can safer, it's cleaner, it's easier to digest. And yeah, you unlock a whole host of nutrients that you just can't get in most raw foods. I, I promised myself I wouldn't use the term microbiome, but the microbiome is quite important and uh, how it interacts with our brain. And that's a two-way street that was probably, uh, you know, co-evolved with the brain itself. And yeah, and another, another big theory that I should touch on is the idea of of how important marine nutrients were in seafood, because there are some theories that when the human race did nearly go extinct in, in many of these bottlenecks, we figured out how because our brains were already relatively evolved by then and, and smart, we figured out how to track tides and access nutrient-rich uh, oyster beds and mussel beds and sea snails. And some studies show that once we were able to do that, you could you could get about. 3500 calories an hour under optimal conditions so yeah the the whole and that would have been a social activity too so all these factors come together you know sitting around the campfire cooking your meat socializing gossiping you know accessing shellfish sharing food Uh, so yeah it's a whole host of factors that come together and you can't really pinpoint which was most important I think they were all important
1: was there anything in the process of researching the book that prized you as part of the history of the human brain
0: Sure, well definitely the sea sponge story. I had no idea about that. The other thing was just how similar our behaviors are to our, our ape cousins. Um, I did a lot of observing of of bonobos and chimps for this book, and just witnessing, you know, I was at the San Diego Zoo. I featured this little snippet, I think, in my book, and just watching these bonobos for a few hours, you really get the sense of how my, how much of their behavior we share. I mean, there was this one incident where a little girl was holding a bottle of water and a young female bonobo came running up and started pointing at the bottle of water through the through the partition and then used her other hand to kind of say, come over here, come over here, and wanted the girl to walk a few feet over to where there was a little hole in the partition and then pointed at it as if... She wanted the girl to dump the water through so she could drink it. And the whole, the whole scene just felt so, so human. It was another inspiration for, uh, for really wanting to get into the primate uh, behavioral research that's in the book.
1: Talk about the future of what it might mean to be humans and where humans and the human brain might be heading.
0: Yeah and that's that's sort of how I close the book where where is the spring going and it's probably too early to say with any you know certainty but there's certainly a lot of um a lot of thought that our new digital world and how we interact now on screens and how you know children you know walk down the street not talking to each other but all on their phones texting like will that will that have long enduring effects and I, you know I think it, I think it will I think a lot of it will be cultural as opposed to you know Under pressure from natural selection, but I think eventually there could be actual physical changes to the brain. There's research showing that if media multitasking, you know, jumping from screen to screen or or checking your email while you're watching a movie, uh, you know, literally impairs your ability to form long lasting memories. So that's, you know, that's something to watch out for. Um, and then, as I say in the subtitle, you know, CRISPR is this genetic engineering technology that's gotten a lot of attention in the last few years in which you can literally go in and edit someone's genome to cut out undesirable traits or to insert desirable ones. Um, hopefully, that will be a good thing in terms of treating diseases that are caused by a mutation. You can go in and and save it, you know, save a child's life. Um But, you know, there are concerns about people trying to develop super babies and insert genes and embryos for intelligence and desirable traits. So that's something that, you know, ethical committees around the world are watching. But, you know, something like intelligence and all these traits people are concerned about are so complex, both genetically and environmentally, that I think that that would be so far down the road that I don't even know if you I would would be here. But it is something to watch out because science does tend to grow exponentially.
1: It's really interesting to see where all the technology heads and uh, what humans will look like in, in the not-too-distant future here.
0: <laughs> Definitely. Hopefully, hopefully we're still doing okay.
1: <laughs> People take a look at the book. What would you like them to take home regarding a history of the human brain?
0: Yeah, I just think um, if you're interested in the brain, I just, you know what interests me was just... The, this the saga of the human saga of how this brain how we ended up with this beautiful brain and how we experienced something like consciousness, which of course is something that who knows if we'll ever be able to answer, but just thinking about how it got here and and certainly where it's going, and also you know all these factors we've been talking about that that shaped our brain, socializing diet. Creativity is another big one. Like th- These are all things that are still beneficial for our brain. So good to consider how our ancestors got here and uh, you know maybe incorporate some of these ideas into our own lifestyles. We
1: were just talking with Dr. Brett Stetka. He has penned the new book, A History of the Human Brain, From the Sea Sponge to CRISPR, How Our Brains Evolved. Dr. Stetka, thank you so much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show.
0: Thanks, Charles. Appreciate it.